I want to welcome you back to our series through the book of Philippians. This is week two. Hopefully you've been reading through the book of Philippians on your own throughout the week. Uh, We decided that rather than just doing one Thanksgiving sermon at the end of the month, we would take this entire month and talk about this theme, this idea of how giving thanks returns to us uh, joy. When we give thanks, we receive joy. Uh, appreciate what you had to say about joy. If you look up joy in the dictionary, a strict dictionary type definition of joy is an emotion of delight. Joy is, in fact, uh, emotional, and it's one of delight. But when you start reading through Scripture, you find that a biblical definition of joy moves beyond emotion. A biblical definition of joy is more spiritual than it is emotional. A biblical definition of joy would be more of a uh, peaceful contentment that has gladness at the heart level. So it's, it's, uh, it's a contentment, there's this spiritual contentment that's happening, this peaceful contentment, and it produces gladness. It's not waiting on our circumstances to produce happiness or an emotion, it works the other direction. And it produces gladness at the heart level because of this spiritual peace and contentment. Spiritual joy, if you think of it like this, is not uh, produced by our circumstances. Rather, it propels us through our circumstances. Uh, Joy is what makes the sweet days sweeter, and it's what makes the sour days less bitter. Joy is what fuels a thankful heart. When we have a thankful heart, when we give thanks, what we receive back is joy. So that's what we're talking about throughout this month, and I want to start this morning with a question that might sound like a stupid question, uh, it's kind of simple. Maybe you might even think, well, that's, that's kind of dumb, but I, I want to ask it anyway. Do you want, you personally, do you want more joy in your life or do you want less joy in your life? Okay, most of you would say more. I don't think anyone in the room was like, you know what? Joy is the worst. Sign me up for despair and disappointment and misery, man. That's what I want in life. I don't think anybody's going to respond to that question that way. I'm sure we all want more joy in our lives. Now, we may not be pursuing things in life that result in joy, but we, I think, all want to have joy. One of the fastest ways to destroy joy in our lives is to have a rotten attitude of disunity. A rotten attitude of disunity will destroy joy because it's toxic to joy. If you have been reading through this letter on your own, you may have noticed in the letter there's there's some disunity happening in this church, this ancient city of Philippi, among these believers. In chapter 3, there was disunity happening between two groups. One of the groups, they were called the Judaizers, and and they wanted all the Christians uh, in the church to continue doing all the Jewish 
uh, ceremonies and living by the Mosaic law, and they were demanding all of these things of, of other Christians. And so they were over here in, in this one kind of extreme, and on the other extreme, there was another group of people that uh, they were saying, no, we reject that. Not only do we reject that, uh, we believe that we have no moral boundary lines in our lives whatsoever. We're saved, and so just do whatever you want. There are no religious, no moral boundary lines for us at all, which is kind of a strange position to take, but that's where they were at. And you had this other one that was super strict about all these rules. Some of them were biblical. Some of them were just kind of made up by men. And, uh, and so these, these two ideas were creating disunity within the church. In chapter 4, we see there was some disagreement between two women named uh, Iodia and Syntyche. I probably butchered their pronunciations, but that's my best uh, attempt at it. But uh, their little spat between these two ladies was causing problems, causing disunity throughout the church. What's interesting is we're not told what the disagreement was about, right? So maybe they were uh, fighting with each other because they both wanted to run the children's Christmas program. I don't know. Whatever it was, uh, Paul begged the church to help them work it out and restore unity because disunity destroys joy. And that's not just true in the church. That's true in other places in our lives. That's true in our marriages. If we have disunity in our marriage, it's going to destroy joy in our lives. If we have disunity in our families, if we experience disunity in the community at large, it can destroy joy in our lives. When people's emotions... Now, sometimes there's legit things that we need to work through. There's maybe a, a problem or an issue or there's competing uh, uh, opinions and, it, and they may be very much informed in, in, in fact and, and all of those things may be completely legit to have hard conversations, right? And those things need to happen sometimes in, in different contexts. But when emotions get involved and they're fueled by things like selfishness or pride or ambition or uh, just conceited attitudes, uh, arguing over preferences or opinions, those things create tension. They create irritation. They create anger. They create division. And, and all that stuff is toxic to joy. And Philippians chapter 2 is about restoring joy that's broken. It's about maintaining, holding on to, and protecting unity. Unity produces a heart of thankfulness, and that results in a heart of joy. I'll, I'll give you a real quick example of what I'm talking about. Uh, Friday night, now I understand we've got different school districts represented in, in the room and online, okay? But uh, I am part of Spring Cove, and uh, Central won a big game Friday night. And uh, so this is a big deal in the community. And what I love, I know small towns, they, they have problems, but one thing I love about small town, what I love about small community is when these kind of things happen, the community is unified. And so it was really, really cool uh, after the game. It was like 10, 10.30 at night, and there were fire trucks from East Freedom, from Martinsburg, from Roaring Spring. That's our community. 
uh, in Spring Cove, and there were fire trucks, like, I don't know, 10, 10 of these fire trucks, that escorted the buses from Freedom Junction all the way through the gap, uh, in through Roaring Spring, back to the football field, and you figure it's 1030 night, probably someone was trying to sleep, it didn't matter, right? These things are blowing the horns and the sirens, and there were people lining the streets in our community, everyone was excited except the people trying to sleep, and, uh, and we got to the, foot, I was at the football field when they got there, and I'm just standing there, uh, you can hear it coming, right? And they get there, and they get off the bus, and you're cheering, but what I loved about that moment is uh, it's our community unified, and I, it just produces, when you have unity, it produces thankfulness. I'm thankful for where I live, uh, it, and that produces joy. I felt joy, even more so. The game was cool. That was fun. I'm glad they got a win, but the, the joy of unity within the community uh, is just a special thing, and when you don't have that, when, uh, when things uh, begin to create disunity, whether it's in a marriage or in a church family or in a community, man, it gets toxic and it can rob joy. So I think chapter 2 is super important at all kinds of different levels, certainly uh, foremost within the church, but uh, it, it filters out into lots of areas in our lives. So here we go. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Get your notes ready, whether you use the paper ones or the digital ones. Verse 1. Paul asks this question, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are, are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one heart. So these questions that Paul asks, uh, he, he's not wondering if they've experienced these things. He's assuming that they have experienced these wonderful things uh, in their connection to Jesus Christ. Uh, what he's getting at is if you've experienced these wonderful things, and, and, and I think we would agree that these are the kind of things, encouragement from Christ, you know, love from Jesus, uh, fellowship with the Spirit, this tenderhearted compassion, all of these things would be things that produce joy in our lives. And then he says, make, make me truly happy, make my joy complete uh, by having unity. If you want to protect the joy that we have in Christ, then we need to make sure we are pursuing unity. Now for Paul, every time he talks about unity, he's always focused in on the gospel. He's focused in on our fellowship uh, as believers with one another. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word unity, what definition pops into your mind, but unity, biblically speaking, doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we have to be clones of one another, that we all have to look alike and that we all have to wear you know, the same outfit or whatever. It's not that we don't have to be mind-numb robots. That's not what Paul's pushing for. Paul's uh, not uh, suggesting that we uh, you know, all have to enjoy the same style. Some of you like my flannel shirt and some of you think you, you don't. And that's a, Some of you are like, Pastor Mark's beard is super out of control. And and that's okay that you, that you think that. 
We don't all have to look the same, and we don't all have to have the same preferences and brand and all of that. Unity means despite our differences, we're going to work really hard to show love and grace towards one another. That's unity, that we're going to work together really hard for the sake of the gospel to make sure that people get to meet Jesus, to make sure that we are working hard to to teach people how to follow Jesus so that we can help each other live a Jesus-centered life. That's what unifies us. Just take a second and, you know, visibly just kind of look around the room. If you look around the room, we're pretty different. I mean, even in this, in this first service, it might be a little more dynamic of a difference in the second. I don't know, but uh, even in this service, there's different generations. You know, we've, got, we've got young students in the room. We've got uh, seniors in the room uh, that are, are closer to in the 70s, 80s. I don't know. We've got... And, and everything in between, different generations. And we come into this room with different life experiences. Some of you grew up in a Christian home, and you were blessed by that. Some of you did not, right? And, and you had a different life experience that has brought you to this moment in time in your life. We have all these different things. Uh, we talk about preferences. I don't. You make a list of anything, brands, uh, food, music, whatever list you want to come up with. You will find different preferences from the people sitting in front of you and behind you and beside you. Right? You think about all of these things, how different we are. How in the world are we supposed to have unity? As different as we are, how are we supposed to uh, maintain unity? How are we supposed to protect unity? If it ever gets broken, how do we restore it? I mean, the whole world's crazy except for me and you. And I'm really starting to wonder about you, right? I mean, Paul lays out three very practical ways for us to experience unity and everything that comes along with it. All these things from verse 1, encouragement and comfort and fellowship, affection, mercy, love, joy. We want that stuff in our lives. How do we achieve it? How do we have unity that produces those things? And then how do we protect it? How do we restore it if it gets broken? So Paul gives us, I, I'll put it this way, three ingredients for unity. Let's start in verse 3. The first one is we've got to be humble. We have to be humble. If we want unity on any level, in any relationship, we have to have humility. We have to be humble. Verse 3 says, don't be selfish. We could just stop on that one. If we could just get that one mastered in our lives, we'd, we'd be all right. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Boy, there's another good one. And then it says, be humble. Say that out loud. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And then he, Paul gives us this incredible example of Jesus and his humility he says in verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, 
He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to or grasp onto. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the glory of God, or to the glory of God, the Father. Jesus is this incredible example of humility. Let's talk about humility. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. Humility is, is thinking about ourselves less. Humility is, is uh, about uh, making sure that we are not thinking of ourselves as better than other people. It's about wondering about the needs of other people before we demand the things that we want. Humility is about being a servant like Jesus. You know, this example that Paul gives us about, about Jesus is an incredible example for two reasons. Number one, there's some rich theology in those verses. Paul here teaches us that Jesus is fully God, that He is fully divine, and at the same time He took on humanity, He was fully human, is fully human, fully divine, and that is what makes Jesus uniquely able uh, to be a sufficient sacrifice on the cross for our sins. His, uh, his, sacri- his substitute sacrifice was sufficient uh, to atone for our sins because He is fully God and fully human. He fits that category that, that, had to, uh, that had to be fulfilled for that to happen. And so we have this rich theology about the gospel in here, about who Jesus is, but then he also challenges the believer to have the same attitude of humility that Jesus has. That he demonstrated when he left the glory of heaven, he laid aside his glory, his rank, his, his privileges, his rights, and he became a servant. He took the status of a slave. He didn't deserve the cross, but in humility he suffered and died in our place. Isn't that incredible? And, and to think that that is the, the level of humility that Paul is challenging us to have, like Jesus. Humility is something that, that can restore unity. Humility is something we, we need to, if we're going to protect uh, unity in, in the church, in, in any kind of relationship. Let's talk about what humility looks like in our everyday lives, and we'll start with the obvious. Uh, We've got to make sure that we are fighting pride, conceit, and selfishness. We've got to be fighting that every day. Like if if you this morning looked in the mirror and you're like, yeah, all right, let's go. Uh, We've got to fight that stuff. We've got to fight, and maybe you do look good, I don't know, but we've got to fight those those feelings of pride, that sin of pride, if we're not willing to fight those battles every day, we're not going to have a heart of humility. 
It's, it's just one of those things. It's an everyday battle uh, that we, are ha- we have to be willing to fight if we want to have humility. If we want a fighting chance at humility, we've got to battle against pride and conceit and selfishness. If you are proud of just how humble you are, you have overshot the target, right? Paul warns us in another passage not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And in the context of that passage, he, he, the point is to remember that we're all sinners, right? The, the point of that passage is to remember we're all equal at the foot of the cross. We all need God's grace, we all need Jesus. There's not a one in the room or on the other side of that camera that, that can say any different. We all need Jesus and His grace. And as long as we can remember that, that's going to go a long way for us to fight back against pride and conceit and thinking that we're better than other people. You know, the other part of humility, though, I mean, that's the basic. You probably already knew that one when you think of humility. You think, well, you got to fight pride. But the other part of humility is the action of being a servant. That's what Jesus demonstrated. The action of being a servant is part of humility. See, if if we're not humble, we're not going to be willing to serve other people. We're going to expect that other people serve us. Do you see how that works? Humility is what allows you and I and, and, and motivates you and I to serve other people. And if it's not there, the other thing's going to happen. We're going to expect everybody to serve us. You know, the, this week, I was, I was genuinely trying to be a good servant. And uh, the, the activity center over there, we, we had this cappuccino coffee or uh, hot chocolate maker or whatever. It's been, it's been broke for a little while. And so Sheets donated a new one. That's a used one, I should say. It's new to us. And, and so uh, Pastor Jeff and I, we went and we picked it up and and brought it back, and just sitting over there, and I thought, you know what, that little time today, I, I want to be a good servant to our students, and I'm going to try to get this thing hooked up, uh, so that the students have it for this weekend, and uh, that'd be nice, right, and so I went to Dibert's Supply up there, and I got all the fittings, and, and got everything hooked up, now, I'll, oh, you can see it, okay, so that's what it looked like well, over here on, on this picture. I got the thing all hooked up and, and tested the water. And, oh, this is good, right? And got it up onto the counter. And, and, uh, and I, here it was. I started off with the right motive. I want to be a servant. And then when I got to this point, I started feeling pretty good about myself. And so I took a picture and I sent it to my wife. I'm the most amazing. So I sent her that picture. And, and then got it up on there and turned it on. And I don't, you, if you're too far back, you can't see this. But what happened next, that thing flooded. I, it got me, right, Tammy? That thing flooded. It must be set on some kind of rinse cycle. And so it just, all the water going in got pushed out the bottom. I ruined all that tea. Uh, those drawers filled up. The water, it was all over the floor. You can see the mop bucket here. It was an absolute mess. My attempt to serve others didn't work out the way that I hoped. And I was thinking about that. You know, that's happened to me before. Uh, some of you may remember the, uh, the, the plow truck incident from a few years ago where I was trying to be 
a sermon. And, and when I look at these things in my life, I think, you know, these failures are probably good. They, these failures keep me humble for sure. But, uh, but what, I, what I don't ever want in my heart, in my life, is to get to the place where I don't want to serve others. I mean, I, I want to be a servant. I, I, I want to be able, if, if God's willing to have the ability to serve other people and, and to do things. Listen, cappuccino machines is not in my contract. I checked. Like, it's not, it's not in the, uh, the, the duties of pastors. Uh, it's not in there, right? And so, but I like to do things to serve other people. And uh, my, my encouragement to you, it might not always go the way that you want. Keep serving. Maybe it's not going to work out. Maybe you won't get applause. Maybe you'll be a, go from hero to zero. That might happen. Uh, but keep serving others. Don't ever, don't ever think that you are too whatever to serve someone uh, that um, maybe will never even know that you did it. Right? Keep serving other people. Because that serving others really is what keeps us humble. That serving other people is, is uh, what keeps our hearts focused on others and not ourselves. Serving others promotes unity, so keep it up. Be humble. The second thing, the second ingredient for unity is obedience. Be obedient. We see that in verse 12. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse People hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I'll be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. I don't know what version you have in your lap. You might have in that, in that one verse there this phrase, work out your salvation. Right? I think that's the way the NIV translates it. And uh, it can be uh, it can be maybe a, a confusing phrase. Uh, the, the new living just when they translate it, they kind of translate it in a way that has the meaning in it. Uh, but this idea of working out your salvation, Paul is not telling them that they need to earn their salvation. Paul's not telling them that they have to earn the right to keep their salvation. That's not what that phrase means. Salvation from sin, salvation from hell, is a free gift of God's grace. Jesus paid for that in full on the cross. We receive God's salvation by His grace through faith in Christ alone. This, this phrase, working out your salvation or our, our salvation, uh, I, I like the way that they translate it here. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. I would put it this way. Be the best Jesus follower that you can possibly be. And we cannot do that. He's very clear that we can't do that without obedience. Be obedient. Right? Have this reverence and this deep uh, fearful or uh, this, this respect. This uh, fear of God is not one where we're, we're cowering in the corner. It's just one of just absolute reverence 
and, for the, and respect for the holiness of God. And uh, when, we approach, when we approach God to have that reverence, and, and when we think about obedience, He's God. I'll put it this way. He's God. You're not. Right? He's God. You're not. He's in charge. You're not. Uh, so this idea of obedience being the best follower of Jesus we can possibly be. And when Paul describes God's will and God's purpose, he says, uh, God's working in you. He's giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. That desire is connected to obedience. Imagine, let's take this phrase, working. Imagine we were working in a mine together. Imagine that we were working in a field together. What is the goal of that work? Isn't the goal of working in a mine to get out of that mine as many valuable resources as possible? That's the goal. Isn't the goal of working in the field together to get uh, the best possible harvest out of that field as we possibly can? Well, if that's the goal, it's not going to happen if we don't work hard at doing the things that are going to result in extracting the valuable minerals, in producing a healthy crop. You notice what happens when we do that. When we work hard, we're not working for our salvation. We're working hard to demonstrate uh, and and work towards a a Jesus-centered life to be the best follower of Jesus that we can be. And, and get as much out of that relationship with Christ and the Holy Spirit as we possibly can. And when that happens, when we are obedient, when we are blameless, when we are pure, it says there that we shine like stars. We shine like stars and we stand out as sources of light in a dark, crooked, depraved culture. Think about this. What, what do you think people in the community see? if we complain about each other? What do you think the people in the community see? If we are arguing with each other online, what what do you think people in the community see um, when there's not unity in our relationships as as believers? What do you think people in the community see when, when we don't have unity in obedience to God. Like we've got, we've got a pocket of people that really wants to be obedient to God and then this other pocket of people that's like, yeah, I'm just going to do whatever, whatever I want. And then people in the community are like, doesn't Festus go to Grace Fellowship Church? Hmm. I didn't know the Bible taught Christians to act that way. Our collective obedience to God, if we've, all, we've all got a responsibility to be obedient to God. And that promotes unity. That promotes unity because we're all working together. I think that phrase earlier on about working together, yes, for the sake of the gospel so that people can meet Jesus, but also that we can help each other live a Jesus-centered life, that we can help one another all kind of moving in the same direction. And and when we fall down, we pick each other up. And and when we get tired, we we cheer each other on. And and maybe when we step out of line, we, we pull each other back. Now, this idea that we work together so that we can have unity in obeying God. So be humble, uh, be obedient, and then finally, be willing to sacrifice. Be willing to sacrifice. Verse 17, dear brothers and sisters, whoop, I'm in chapter 3 there, let me go back to chapter 2. 
Uh, oh, here we go. But, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God. Just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. In a Jewish ritual of sacrifice, uh, an animal would be slaughtered. It would be burned on the altar, and then wine would be poured onto the burning sacrifice. Of course, that wine would turn into vapor. It would be uh, completely consumed by the fire. And Paul's describing his life like this, like a sacrifice to God that is, is completely consumed. Paul said that being a sacrifice, that's, that brings him gladness. That causes him to rejoice. That's an expression of joy in his life. And he wants the believers to experience that same gladness, that same joy of sacrifice. So here's, here's a mind bender. I was trying to think through uh, a good answer to this question, and I don't know that I have. I'm just going to ask you to think through it with me. Does sacrifice fuel humility and obedience, or does humility and obedience fuel a willingness to sacrifice? I don't know. I do know this. They sure seem to be connected to one another. On one hand, if we are humble, our hearts will be moved to put others first and we'll be willing to sacrifice for them because we're putting them first. On the other hand, if we're willing to sacrifice for others, our time, our energy, our resources, all for the sake of others, then our hearts are going to grow in humility because we're putting other people first. We're practicing that, putting ourselves behind them. On one hand, if we are obedient to God, we will be willing to sacrifice because God said to sacrifice. He said to be generous. He said to put others first. Our salvation doesn't cost us anything. Jesus paid for our salvation in full, but obedience? Yeah, obedience costs a lot. What does it cost you and I to give up control of our lives? Think about that one. Now, on the other hand, if we are willing to sacrifice, we're going to be more willing and motivated to obey God. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know which one is the chicken. I'm not sure which one is the egg. Uh, and, and, you know, you could pull me aside after the service today and tell me how you've got it all figured out. And I'll say, didn't you listen to the part about humility here? I don't know. Maybe you do have it figured out. But here's, here's, what, I, here's what I know to be true. If we are not willing to sacrifice, if we're not willing to sacrifice, we can't have unity. You can't have unity in a church. You can't have unity in a marriage. You can't have unity within the community. If we're not willing to sacrifice, it won't work. It's like pulling the battery out of your car. Yeah, you still have a car, but it's not going anywhere. And it's not doing what it's designed to do. Put this into practical terms. If you and I want to practice growing in humility, if we want to practice and, and grow in obedience this week, here's how we do it. Do something for someone that costs you something. 
do something for someone that cost you something. And if you can do that with humility, you will be promoting unity. Give it a try. I think we all want joy in our lives, but we can't have joy if we don't have unity. If disunity is destroying your joy, whether it's you know, some relationship within the church like Yodia and Syntyche, if, if, that's, if that's what's happening, or maybe in your marriage or some, some form uh, of disunity that you're experiencing in the community, uh, then here's, here's a challenge. I, we need to start with our own heart. Don't assume that this is somebody else's responsibility to take the first step. Start, start that repair work in, in your own heart, and I need to start in my own heart. We can't assume that unity is the responsibility of someone else. So we're going to ask ourselves the hard question, what can I do to promote unity? You need to ask yourself that question. What can I do to promote unity? How can I be more humble? How can I be more obedient? How can I be more sacrificial in my everyday life? How, what can I do on a daily basis to promote unity? And it's not just for our own personal sake. It's not just for the sake of our church unity. It's not just for the sake of your marriage. It is those things, but it's also for the sake of the gospel, for our testimony of gospel-believing, Jesus-centered Christians. We want to shine, I think, we want to shine like stars in a dark, depraved world. Well, we're not going to be able to do that until we have unity with one another. And it's super important to the for the sake of, of the gospel, if we want people to meet Jesus and to know that He actually does have the power to change hearts and lives, if we want them to know that's true, then we, we have to demonstrate it in our own lives. Does that make sense? I want joy. I think you want joy. Um, and if we want to be able to rejoice and have more joy, less joy, we've got to have unity. And I think we can do that through humility and through obedience, and certainly through uh, being willing to sacrifice, putting putting uh, the needs of others before ourselves.